Making, a podcast by Bonsai Creative that helps creatives in film get where they're going faster by sharing the advice, knowledge, and insights of professional creatives across the film industry. I'm your host, Chris Barkley. Hi, my name is John Lante Mullins. I am a writer, director, producer. Um, you might know me for some of the branded content that I've done with OWN, um, Hershey's, Viacom, Barbie, and I've done a couple of short films that have won some national awards. And what I'm working on, I'm working on a really beautiful school called the Heartbeat Film Club, where we teach directors and writers how to create from their heart and know their own voice. And I've also worked on a documentary with Gavin DeGraw, which I'm really excited about. What I'm excited about, oh, and I'm writing some pilots and pitching. What I'm excited about is the world understanding their beautiful place here and how to export great creative ideas and just the journey that we're all going to go on and loving each other and hugging each other. That's what I'm excited about. John Latte Mullins, welcome to the Make It Podcast. Thank you. You sound so great. That was like <laughs> really like, wow, okay. My mom would have been like, oh, he's serious. So. Well, we're going to have fun in this conversation. And, and what we do... Uh, in these conversations here on the Make It Podcast, is we we're not very linear. We're going to bounce around a little bit, if that's okay. Mm-hmm. But I do want to give this audience a deeper sense of who you are. So I'm going to read a little bit from a short bio, okay. and you tell me uh, at the end if if it needs to be amended or if anything's wrong. Because as I always say, this is the internet, and we yeah. should not trust the internet. Just <laughs> You know, as a baseline foundational piece of thinking. So, all right, here we go. Mm -hmm. Uh, Jean Latte Mullins is a award winning director. I'm sorry, award winning writer, producer, and director. She directs films, music videos, promos, and branded content. Her promo and commercial credits include work with Fox, CMT, Barbie, Amazon Studios, Paramount Pictures, Bravo, Hershey's, Pantene. Nickelodeon, and OWN, to name a few. Her short films have won numerous awards, including Best Director at the Black Women in Film Festival in 2015, Best Screenplay in 2018, and the Grand Prize winner, excuse me, for her short film Soul Fire in the Jack Daniels Gentleman Jack Real to Real competition in association with BET and Code Black Entertainment. She's also worked with various creatives to help develop projects to pitch. Jan, as we're going to call you for the remainder of this podcast (laughs) conversation, is a true believer in the power of collaboration. Her tenacity to run after honest performances and soul-provoking visuals makes her a great choice for any talent-driven narrative or commercial work. And I want to start with this idea of running after, and there are themes about your life that seem to jump right out. And I'm using the word jump sort of, uh, as punitry, (laughs) if you will. And you'll see what I mean later, because I, I think that one thing that jumps out, one theme is that you're fearless is that there are moments in your life where others turn away or 
think better of it and you keep plowing forward. And I think there's a theme that runs through all your films and it's this theme of leaping forward, people jumping, people leaping, taking a big leap, maybe a leap of faith, running towards something through the drama and towards that, towards a moment. And I couldn't help but notice that was a line that existed throughout your films from 2011 all the way to now. Uh, and so I want to start with uh, a Greyhound bus trip you took from Atlanta to Wilmington, North Carolina, when you were 18 years old. Tell me, yeah. can you detail that trip and tell us why you went? Sure. Well, first of all, thank you guys for having me. I really appreciate it. Second of all, you jumped right off the gate trying to make me cry. Like I, I cry. I always say I'm going to cry and then I do tear up, but like, this was like my heart. Oh my gosh. It's so great. So yes, we're going to have a great conversation. Um, I really appreciate it. Let me wipe these tears. Hold on. Um, yeah. Thank you. Just thank you for taking the time to do that research and all that. So yeah, I had a dream of, I wanted to write for Dawson's Creek uh, when I was 18 years old, um, which I really just aged myself, but I don't care. You know what I mean? <laughs> um, and I wanted to write for the show and I just felt it in my heart that the Lord was like, go after it. So I took a Greyhound bus to Wilmington and I camped around there for like two days. I had like no place to live or anything. I had slept on a park bench. Okay. Like I was like really living the homeless lifestyle, even though I grew up upper middle class, you know what I'm saying? Like my parents had no idea. Um, and they, I saw this guy that had a WB hat on and I really felt this nudge to go talk to him. His name, his name was Greg Prange and he was the supervising producer at the time of Dawson's Creek. And then I think he went on to produce one tree Hill. And, um, I just approached him on the side of the road and I said, Hey, uh, I want to write for Dawson's Creek. And he was like, no, I don't want to hear it because I don't want to get sued. And I was like, well, what if I promise I don't sue you? And he was like, okay, let me hear. And I pitched this story idea and he <laughs> loved it. And he was like, write me a treatment. And of course, at the time I, it was like, what year was this? God, this was 1999. So at the time, you know, there was not as much information out there, especially about the details of, of, pitching and all of that stuff out there. Um, and so I wrote a treatment and as we all know, a treatment can range from, you know, a page to a couple of pages. Mine was 150. I wrote him a book. I wrote the man a book and I was like, and he said, and then chills ran up her spine and blah, blah, you know, and he was so kind to me that he continued to take my phone calls all the way up until pretty much the last day of Dawson's Creek. And I remember he said, I really like it, but it's something that we already kind of, it's similar to what we have in development. Can you write me something else? And I remember at the time I was like, Oh, I wasn't expecting that because as you said, like I jump and leap and I put all of this passion into one thing. It's hard for me to do multiple things um, in that way. And so I wasn't ready. I wasn't prepared. And so I, I let fear take a hold of me. And I think it was two years. Um, yeah. Cause I think Dawson, no, it was longer than that because I pitched in 99 and Dawson's Creek ended in 2003. So it took me four years to basically come back to him and have nothing. I was so afraid of failing that I just never started. Wow. 
And yeah. it, it's, there's a huge lesson in that. And it's, it's interesting how time is, is the ultimate sort of judge. Um, I think about all of our favorite shows from the nineties and no one would have expected, for example, that Michelle Williams would be probably the person that comes out of that show that has sort of the most clout as an actor right. or actor. Well, I wasn't surprised because even back then for me as a director, like <laughs> she had such stunning presence and such stunning timing and like all the little intricacies that you couldn't that weren't necessarily missing from the other actors, but were very pronounced with her even in that show. Mm. So to me, I was always looking for her work because I gravitate towards stuff like that. Yeah. 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 It's, it's, it's something that uh, if you had an eye for it, it sounds like you would, you would see it. And if you're caught up in the celebrity of it, then maybe not, you know, I, think about saved by the bell randomly right now as well. And I think if you would have asked me in 1991, um, where Mark Paul Gossler's career was going to go, I'd say he was going to be the next Brad Pitt. Mm. You know, I, same with Mario Lopez. I, who's, who does movies all the time and, 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 and works all the time, but it's just like, there is a moment we'll talk about imposter syndrome a little bit later, but Mm. The, there is a moment where you look at someone like a Mario Lopez, for example, and say, I can't do better than that. Uh, like, yeah, like, yeah. like the man is the man, uh, it, it looks like he was manufactured for, you know, how people say like, give me this person's head, this yeah, person's yeah. biceps, this person's <laughs> abs and put yeah. them all together as a person. He's kind of yeah. like that. Right. And it's like, well, if that's not enough, then, then, you know, to be what I, I think in my head I want to be, which is a whole other issue we deal with as, mm-hmm. as creatives is like this idea of who you're supposed to be or who you want to be instead of just, you know, you know, what is allowing you to be creative uh, every day? Um, mm-hmm. I, I promised we would jump around a little bit and thank you so much for uh, the story uh, about Dawson's Creek, because I too have taken a, a very long ride on a Greyhound bus and know that it can be pretty scary <laughs> And, um, I really related to the story too, because I, I was homeless for a month living in a Kroger parking lot in my four door mm-hmm. Honda Accord. Um, and maybe, uh, not for this podcast, but maybe for some other conversation in person when I'm down in Atlanta, hanging with Bree Wheeler or something like that. <laughs> um, I'll tell you some secrets about that, uh, homeless experience. Okay. Um, <laughs> uh, sorry, audience. Uh, <laughs> um, as a child, uh-huh. you told your parents you wanted to be a maid or a filmmaker. And I know you've said that a few times, but what, what I've never heard you say is what they said after that you grew uh-huh. up upper, upper middle class. I don't think your upper middle class parents would want you to be a maid or a filmmaker. Right. Yeah. And let me just say upper middle class is generous. I was pretty much middle class, but like, um, well, first of all, I think it's interesting just going back a little bit. I think it's interesting, like who we look up to. Right. Mm -hmm. So Mario Lopez for, for you, which I, I find interesting. Like why, why was that the thing for you? It was, it wasn't just him. There was a lot uh-huh. of people, but, uh, when it comes to saved by the bell, it was, it yeah. was probably Mark Paul Gossler e- equally as much yeah. as Mario Lopez for that particular show. Uh-huh. 
Yeah. yeah. Just the same way. If you watch Dawson's Creek, you probably had a, a pretty strong opinion of, of James Vanderbeek. Um, yeah, I, yeah. If, if you're a guy. Oh, gotcha. Yeah yeah, yeah. 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 Wanting to be in the, you know, an actor, let's say. Right. Um, yeah. So what did my parents say? They said nothing. They looked real surprised and the words, <laughs> they were just shocked and there were no words that came out. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. They were always trying to support me. Uh, and they were just like, and I said, I don't know if I said in the story that you heard that I said to them and I'll live you, with you for the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. They were like, uh, you know, <laughs> They didn't know what to say. They looked real scared. Let's just say that. They looked real scared. But my parents were always supportive. Um, I remember, so I'm, I'm pitching something for a major makeup brand right now. And a part of the campaign that I talked about where I was coming at it from is that my mom used to write on the mirror, you are somebody. And she would always tell me and my sister that. And growing up in Atlanta, I live in Nashville now. Well, I'm in between Atlanta and Nashville, but growing up in Atlanta, you always had the strong history, cultural history of Atlanta and seeing all these kind of cultures and races like intermingling, um, which is, you know, very different than other places around, but also seeing strong black leaders, not just in a historical context, but right in front of you in business and film and art and education, like to see those images reflected back to me on top of it, being in my own home of two loving parents who worked hard, who dreamt, who um, actually left and tried to do those dreams. And then for them to turn to you and say, you can do anything. I always felt like there was nothing that was off limits to me. So me being a filmmaker, I never thought, well, I'm black and I'm a female, so I can't do it. I just always thought I have this dream and I can't wait for the ride. You know, yeah. it, it's so it's so true. And, and thank you for sharing that as well. For this audience who's, who's all over the world, you know, if, if you're in the United States, there are a few cities where you have a predominance of, of African-American black people. And Atlanta is unique to all of those cities that exist. So there's only a handful, but it's unique to all of them in the sense that black people thrive there. And I remember my first trip to Atlanta because I grew up an Atlanta Falcons fan because at the time there was no football team uh, in my city. And I remember going there and just being floored, just almost flattened in the best way. My heart was warmed. I just couldn't believe there were that many black people being successful. No one told me that was possible. Mm. Um, because at the time, 50% of the black people you saw were struggling, like on the street, you could just be driving down the street in Nashville. And if you saw a black person, they did not look like they were doing okay. And then you go to Atlanta, it's like Atlantis. <laughs> like, oh, yeah. oh. What has happened? What has gotten into the water here? Like, like, so it's, it was, it's, it was all inspiring. It it made me, you know, personally so hopeful. And I think a lot of the people um, around us know that one of the mentors we had early on that helped us get a start, our start in film was Dick Gregory, the Mm -hmm. the comedian, Dick Gregory activist. And um, 
he he says something that I don't know if it's controversial, but it is a different idea, which is that black parents always tell their kids they have to work twice as hard to get somewhere in this country. And he hated that. Mm. He hated that. And so I love the fact that your parents instilled in you that you are somebody you're just as good as anybody else. Cause I think that when you tell your kid that what you want them to hear is be motivated, be inspired, keep going, try your hardest. Cause you're going to need to try your hardest. But what the kid hears is they're half as good as the, the white. Kid. Yeah. I think it's, it's such an interesting, and I knew this conversation was going to make me cry. Cause it's like, eh. it's such an interesting perspective because what I've learned is that, you know, I used to go around and be like, well, this is this in terms of, and I still believe a lot of these things in, in terms of what you're talking about, but I also have to accept and understand that I have just had a different experience than other people. Mm-hmm. And, and I think it's extremely important what is spoken to you and your environment. There are a lot of white men that I know that grew up very poor. Mm-hmm. But the difference was their parents, right? And in some cases, the, the idea of, you know, that same mentality of, well, not you have to work twice as hard, but you're not going to get anywhere because you're poor, right? Mm-hmm. And in some cases, um, they were like, you're going to work your butt off because you're going to make it. You know what I mean? And so for me, I think it's, I think a lot of what we're talking about is environmental in terms of what's in your environment. Um, But I also think that I can't tell someone else what their experience is. And so parents that choose to do that, they have a lived experience that makes them feel as though that is what they have to do to survive. And until people get more information in terms of how to distill that experience through um, distill it in a way that will help them thrive instead of survive. Then it's, it's, it's hard to point fingers and be like, like, you know, like how Oprah says, when you know better, you do better. So I absolutely feel that way, but I was very blessed to have parents and an environment that, push that agenda that you are somebody you can do anything. And then seeing it in front of me, like my mom, she worked in business in Atlanta. And all I saw when my mom was growing up, number one, as a female, she was the top salesperson, like in the state or whatever, Mm -hmm. right. In this region. But what I saw were white men that were underneath her and wanted desperately to work with her because she was so good. And it had nothing to do with her skin color or her gender. It was, she was good, you know? And so, but my mom was also still a proud black woman. She still told me to uh, encourage me to embrace my hair, my skin, my body. So it was like both. And in this world, especially right now, I think that we think that we have to be either or. When we are so many different things on the inside that life can be both. And so she was a strong, proud black woman, but she was also like, I'm good. And this is why I'm, I don't know. I'm getting into this weird, I'm not explaining it right, but. um, No, I think, I think you are. Cause I think it's the primary shift between the generation mean you grew up in and mm -hmm. what's happening now, which is that, you know, I'm biracial. My dad's white uh, or German and my mom's black. And, uh, or was black. She passed away in, in 2007. Okay. And, um, I know exactly what you're talking about. 
And I never wanted my skin color to be the first thing in the room. I never wanted it to precede me as a, as a whole person. And today, a lot of people do want that. They want the first thing that you see to be their race or their gender or whatever. And I think it diminishes your opportunity to be respected for who you are and appreciated and accepted for who you are first. While not being behind it, but being parallel is, and here's who I am and here's my background and here's my culture. Right. Yeah. So I did, I did find there was a lot of parallels by the way in our childhood. Um, we both love Michael Jackson Hey. and I was in his fan club when I was a kid. Were you? That's awesome. Yeah. I had his, I had that picture of him in that yellow sweater vest on my wall. (laughs) You remember that yellow sweater? (laughs) I think so. I think so. And then, um, we both watched color purple and loved that at a young, at a young age. Now here's, here's something for you. Let me know if you, you knew this. Mm-hmm. Now we all think about the color purple mm-hmm. as this momentous sort of culture changing film. Did you know that it didn't win any awards? Yes. That was a fact on Dawson's Creek. I did know that. That's crazy to me. Yeah. It was nominated for 15 things. Crazy. And didn't win any of them. Even yeah. Spielberg didn't win. But I think it, so the new color purple is coming out and I think everything what I, how I try and look at life is everything is about timing. Mm-hmm. So with the Dawson's Creek thing, I, I didn't end up getting it, of course, because I didn't submit anything. Um, my prayer is that one day it will happen when it's supposed to happen, like a connection right. to that. But so many other beautiful things came out of that. So I'm going to, I'm going to jump into that in a second, but I want to go back really quickly to this idea of people wanting their, their skin color, their whatever to be seen Mm. first. And then this, yeah, please. I've always said to a friend of mine, when we talk about race and stuff, I'm always like, but where there's smoke, there's fire. Mm. You always have to understand, at least I feel like to have empathy for other people and understand where they're coming from. There is a reason why people are like, I want to be seen. I am black. I want my black voice to be heard in whatever way that it's for them. Right. Mm -hmm. And so again, I think with empathy comes understanding and communication. And then maybe there's a different way to see it. Mm -hmm. I think there's, when you have empathy and understand where people are coming from, like I may not agree, but I think deep down what people are saying is I want to be seen. This may be the vehicle, but I want to be seen because at some place there was a deep wound and a deep hurt there that them as a person, their experiences, who they are was not seen. And so then it comes out in other ways. And so to me, I feel like when you get to the root of that, when you kind of, yes, you know, people want an opportunity to be seen as a black uh, person, as a Hispanic person, as a, you know, but for me as a director and as a person, I want to sit down with that person and understand their experiences and what their grandmother made them when they were eight, that gave them comfort, what their favorite song was that they walk, take walks to relieve anxiety or stress. And then where we can connect and then bring that to the screen, bring that director there. So I always feel like we all come from so many different perspectives and it's okay to have empathy, to understand why someone feels that way. Yeah. 
and then try and break it all the way down to where you can connect as human beings and move forward. Does yeah, that make it, sense? It does. It does. So I understand the and, movement. And by the way, that was kind of what I was trying to say. Well, your statement before that I didn't kind of wrap up in a bow, which is that uh, I just want to make a quick mo- uh, uh, comment on your Dawson's Creek comment. Yeah. Time will be the judge in 10 years. You, you, you're probably going to get Dawson's Creek <laughs> and they're making another color purple. I don't yeah. know if I like that idea because oh, the first it. one means so much to me, but I, I don't want to judge it before I see it. And look, yeah. time tells the tales is my point. Yeah. And, and then to your, your point about being seen that hits home with me. I think that's at the heart of, of the issue, which is how many generations can pass where you can walk by me and not, appreciate me as a human being systematically. And what does that do to my psyche? What does that do to my self-confidence? Right. And because, and this is the thing, and maybe I have, and I just didn't realize it, but I haven't experienced that. So I think I always talk about people that are in the middle, Mm -hmm. right? I feel like I'm someone that's in the middle where I have not experienced those things but I know they exist and I don't want to devalue someone else's experience. Yeah. And, but also to say, but you are not just that Yeah. you can, you, you don't, to me, working twice as hard does say you're less than when you started with something already great. Let's put a spotlight on that and you just be you, you know what I mean? Um, and I know we're probably beating this dead horse. I no, just, this is great. This is great. <laughs> so, and I do, my dad, uh, whenever I've moved into a new place, I've moved into this new place one time. And my dad literally goes, he goes, heat rises like that. He was like, <laughs> heat rises. And so I always think about, I always think as a black female director, am I going to miss this moment in time because of how I speak and what I speak about and that I, I'm not, there's content that's put out there on what people think black female voices should look like or be like and the black experience. And I'm, I don't know if they're looking for my voice in the way that I see the world because it isn't packaged in this bow of what people think the black experience should be and how it should look. But it's great because there are times for that story. That's what I'm saying. Like timing, there are times for those stories there's a plethora of, of people that are like, this is my black experience. This is my black experience. I'm waiting for, this is my human experience. You know what I mean? Um, I forgot why or where, what? So the point is, is that yes, amidst all of this talent will always rise, but I do think you have to give people the opportunity. I was lucky where, where people across all cultures and races gave me opportunity but some people don't have that. So get, get in, in, in whatever case, uh, male, female, LGBTQIA, like give people the opportunity and then see where they stand, see what they do with it, see yep. what they do with it. With Dawson's Creek, I fumbled that opportunity, but I learned my lesson. I feel like I'm rambling now, so I'm going to stop. I'm going to stop. Okay. No, so, it's, it's good because I just spoke about this concept, um, a few weeks ago and um, talk about it now and then it's this idea of like having been the only minority in a room, the majority of my life in, in 
a couple of different fields before I got into film and you start to feel like you're the chosen one kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And then Mm -hmm. that's a silly thought, but it does creep into your head. Like, how did I sift through? How did, how did this happen? And, and you want, you wonder about it. So no, I'm, I'm with you, but, um, what you just touched on in terms of what you want to bring into the world, mm-hmm. you're quoted as saying, um, why are you creating what you're creating mm-hmm. and how will it help the world? And I'm, I, I know that that's a, that's something that, that is a foundational thought for you. So I'm just wondering, is it a requirement? Like if, if a filmmaker comes to you or is in one of your classes, um, wants your mentorship, but they have a rom-com. Mm-hmm. Are they disqualified in your in your in your eyes because because it doesn't bring enough to the world or or can any genre bring something to the world? Yeah, I absolutely think that any genre can bring anything uh, something to the world. It's not necessarily regulated to genre; it's regulated to the heart that's bringing the the work to the material, right? So, really, what I would do is talk to that filmmaker about why. They want to create this, what it is about this project that connects to them and then how to make the story and the characters real and authentic that will bring something to the world. But it starts with that filmmaker. I always tell my students, what is your heartbeat? And that really is what is the thing that gets you up in the morning that that you have so much passion for that drives you, that gives you chill bumps. Once you figure that out, that it will transfer to the rest of the world for you and you'll find your audience. There's a keynote speech that I heard by Bobby Frist, which is the nephew of Bill Frist, the senator. And um, he talks about how many heartbeats the average person has in their life. Uh-huh. And it's really connected. So like when I, when I was you know, preparing for this conversation, I just kept thinking about that keynote speech and how, how the two ideas really are quite connected because what he said in the keynote is, look, you only have about 80 million heartbeats or something like that. I can't remember the exact number mm-hmm. in your mm-hmm. entire life. Mm-hmm. And so the second your heart isn't in something, you should stop doing it right away. Wow. Wow. So there's this connection between mm-hmm. the heartbeat, the way, the way you position it and the, and the idea that this is finite, you know? you have to, you have to have the courage to, to do what you really want to do and, and work it out. Cause it's not like you're going to, I think sometimes in order to live our everyday lives, we have to suppress the idea that we're going to die. Otherwise we'll just be depressed all the time and mm-hmm. sad. But in that repression of the idea of that reality, we also sort of live sometimes as if we're going to get around to, as if we're mm-hmm. going to get some second chance that uh, we may we may or may not get, you know, in, in our lives. Um, was there a moment? Well, I should contextualize this because okay. this is kind of touching to the heartbeat thing. Sure, you are a person that um, is is a deep believer or a follower of, of Christianity, um, of religion, faith, woman of faith. Was there a moment that deepened your connection to faith? Mm -hmm. Because I know you weren't always that way. 
Yeah, that's such an interesting, which leads back to the Dawson's Creek thing. Um, first of all, yes, I love Jesus so much. <laughs> I love people so much. Uh, yeah, I mean, when I was a kid, I felt the presence of the Lord very strongly. I remember my uncle was dying. He had cancer. I was probably four or five. And I remember laying, he was laying in the bed. And now I'm thinking this through and it's very much a spiritual thing, um, which taps into a lot of my directing. Um I remember laying next to him and there was so much sunlight in the room. And also, you know, I go back and I talk to my students about think about the themes in your life. And like, and so in a lot of my work, there's like light pouring through windows, light. And it's always reminding me of light in the darkness. And that is a huge theme for me. So it reflects itself a lot in how I present that on screen and going back to my earliest memory of my uncle dying, but this light pouring in. And so it reminded me that hope was there, that Jesus was there. And I felt this, I just felt like what you said in that moment at four or five, I knew he was dying. And I felt like this life, it felt like I had lived that life before, but I was doing it again. And it was like a not that life was a dress rehearsal, but there was something after this Mm -hmm. and that it was important to do something with this life. Now I knew that at four. Right. Um, and so then growing up, like at, I think I'd said in one of the videos at eight, like I knew the Lord wanted me to make films for him. I knew that I knew that was my purpose on this earth. Yeah. Um, but you know, along the way life happens And that Dawson's Creek thing, and I'm about to cry, it was such a disappointment that I had failed, that God had set it up for me. I had known that I wanted to do, I knew all this stuff. He set up the opportunity and I had failed and I couldn't let it go. And I lived in a small town, Boone, North Carolina, and we had all graduated and I hadn't gone to college, but everybody knew that I pitched this thing for Dawson's Creek. And everyone's like, they were all like rallying behind me and so excited. And then when I had failed, I fell into a deep depression. I fell into a deep depression and I, my aunt came with her church ladies and they prayed over me and I was running from Jesus. I was running from God. I, I, I definitely had an attempt to, you know, kind of end it all. And I just felt like my aunt and her church ladies prayed for me. And I just felt like there was more for me. It wasn't time for me to go. And it, it, and then I, I moved to Atlanta. I found a church and I fell in love with Jesus. And it's taken years and years and years to really forgive myself for that. And to really fall in love with Jesus in a real way and in a daily basis way. So I think when that opportunity comes around again, I think I'll be, I think, again, sometimes you don't get things because you're not ready. It's a not yet, not a no. And I think in that moment, if I, because I was, my identity was so attached to success in that way and not in really loving myself in Jesus, that if I would have gotten success and failed, I don't even know if I'd be here right now. Was your film, your short film hesitation a little bit inspired by that experience. You know, in that short film, you have two people who are on the edge of a bridge Mm -hmm. or building and are are ready to commit suicide. And you see two versions of how their lives could go. Yeah. 
And just to contextualize that for the listener. Sure. So my boyfriend at the time, um, he's married now with like two kids and so happy. He wrote the script and I remember I read it and I did feel connected to it because of those moments that I had experienced prior. And when I did attempt, you know, make that attempt, and this is the first time I'm literally ever talking about it publicly. So thank you to you for being a great interviewer and bringing this out. Um, when I did make that attempt, I did have that feeling like there's something more. And if I give up now, I'll never see it, you know? Um, and so, yeah, that, that film as a director. So when you talk about, like when I was talking about earlier about directors can bring anything to the table, um, but it's how they connect to it. And I said yes to that project because it connected to me on a deep level because I had to get something out maybe about that experience, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And kudos, um, on, on that film and really, I I hope everyone goes and checks out all your work, Um, your, your work with, with Chris uh, Anthony Hamilton as your DP has um, it's just gotten so great. Your shots are so lush. I love the creativity, your, your choice of angle, uh, your lighting choices um, that, that you, that you um, sort of co-work with, with, uh, with your DP there with Chris. And uh, there's one shot that I love where you just sent where it was like a drone shot over a lake with people sort of yes. the drone <laughs> sort of, sort of outpacing this, the shot of the people jumping into the lake. Yeah, yeah. I was like, that's creative. Cause you know, a, a regular indie filmmaker would have shot that differently. They wouldn't have made that choice and it just made the whole shot big. And uh, oh, I, I, I loved it. So, uh, you're, you're, you're a super talent. Uh, speaking of super talent, who, uh-huh. who's Meg Deloach? Oh God. What did she mean to you? Huh? First of all, whoa. Uh, <laughs> so Meg Deloach is a, she's a producer in Hollywood. She is a showrunner for a show called the neighborhood on CBS and family reunion on Netflix. And she's been involved in a whole bunch of stuff. And just to backtrack, the person that wrote hesitation, his name is Troy Moore. He's great. Chris mm-hmm. Anthony Hamilton is a friend of mine. He's a writer, director, producer, and DP. He's great. He's worked with me on my later stuff. And that, film that you're talking about was a dance film called uh she set the city on fire by my friend gavin degraw um so just to give that context meg deloach i love so, gavin degraw saw him in did? concert at vanderbilt university years ago uh he was there with uh of mice and men i think or something like that or really? um, what is the name of that freaking band that's not the name of the band anyway go ahead okay. total sidebar uh, it was a great all, concert. His new, yes his new album is coming out may 20th called face the river and you have to go see him in concert. He is, especially with this album, amazing. Amazing. No, no, yeah. No problem. May the 20th, also, Jacob Collier will be at the Wild Horse here in Nashville. So I have to make sure I go see Jacob Collier as well. He's okay. a genius. <laughs> Just okay. look him up if you don't know him. You'll you'll fall head over heels. Okay. Um, I'll look okay. him up. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, continue, Meg. Yeah. So I joined this program called Start With Eight with um, this, it's United Women of Color. um, And it uh, is ran by this woman. Her name is Cheryl. I don't want to say Burke, but Cheryl. 
they have a great program for um, a friend of mine. Her name is Angela Barnes, and she is a director. She's actually directing the new Ironheart that's coming out. And she told me, yeah, about this program. And um, that's a great thing about Atlanta, too. We all just love to help and support one another and kind of grow up together. And when we get opportunities, we tell other people about it or get people on jobs and stuff like that. But anyway, she told me about this great program. And, um, and it's just a group and just supporting and giving opportunities. And there was this program called start with eight, which pairs you with mentors in the industry. So I was paired with Meg Deloach, um, who is a mentor. And I was paired with Matt King, who is now at Amazon studios, but he was over at legendary and he actually helped create uh arrow, which is one of my favorite shows arrow and the flash. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was, a, he was an EP on Lovecraft country. And, uh, this, that 11, 63 with James Franco. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So both of those have been really great. Uh, again, I owe Meg some stuff. <laughs> I owe her some scripts <laughs> that, you know, I, I learned my lesson, but in some ways I'm still a procrastinator. So anyway, yeah, yeah that's, that's incredible. And I absolutely love the flash. Oh. And based on your recommendation, I will I will catch up on on Arrow. Yeah, uh, I, have well, not, Arrow, I have not seen it yet. The best season of Arrow is season three. That's okay. the best. First season, you kind of got to get into it. And then second season, you're on this train. Third season, the best. And then seasons four through eight, you just stay because you're a fan. Just right. You know, I don't like to talk about people in public. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I'm going to give you that. <laughs> I've been caught up in all the Silicon Valley shows right now. Like I'm watching, I just finished super pumped on Showtime. Uh uh Great, great, great. Uh Sorry. Um, Molly Wood and Jason Calacanis and all these people who are with Uber hate it, but it's, Mm. it's awesome. And now I've gone on to we crash with, I saw the documentary. How is it? And that's, yeah, the show's on Apple TV. It's been amazing. Jared Leto's unbelievable uh-huh. and then i'm going to go from that to hulu and watch uh-huh. the elizabeth holmes series um because i heard that podcast so this is like the power of podcasting i heard the podcast called the dropout uh which oh, i think was sponsored okay. by abc news yeah and elizabeth holmes is a fascinating character because i know people that she pitched to mm. And to, to have them describe what it was like to be in that room. Well, I mean, I guess if the audience is curious, here's the deal. If you, if you were in healthcare and Elizabeth Holmes has this product that you think is real, um, it, it, it stands to disrupt your entire margin. And so in these rooms, she would come in and pitch and everyone would be a sycophant. They would be like, whatever she says is the right thing. Hmm. And that's how she was able to build it because just the threat that this was credible. Really uh, quickly. I'm not, I'm pretty sure I've heard the news story somewhere, but I'm not super familiar with Elizabeth Holmes. Oh, she had Theranos, which was the biggest grift of all time. Okay, gotcha. (laughs) You know, she had a valuation of, of 10 plus billion dollars and the Mm. company wasn't real. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Let me, let me contextualize (laughs) it. Yeah. The company wasn't real. The product 
might have got there, but it didn't do what it said it was going to do. And mm-hmm. she had all these investors' money. The company went to zero, and she just was convicted, found guilty of defrauding these investors. And she's going to wow. appeal it. She's also pregnant going into jail, which is going to be awesome. She thought that was going to save her, I think. But uh, according to this this podcast I just mentioned, but yeah, um, it was easy to be enamored with her in the room because you oh. needed her. You, you didn't want to not invest in her and then find out she was right. And then your business be destroyed by this product that basically could run. She was saying it could run 200 something tests, I think with just a drop of blood. So Test for what? Test for what? Anything. Huh? You know, like what, what, what panel of tests? See right now, if you draw, give blood to your physician, mm-hmm. you know, they can run a panel of tests and they need like two vials of blood to run these tests. Mm. And maybe even with that amount of blood, they can't run all the tests. She could do it with a finger prick. She said, mm, you know, but the tests weren't, they didn't work or they weren't real. Both. Um, you know, mm. I think one person gave blood and they came back and said she was HIV positive. And it kind of ruined her life. And she wasn't HIV positive at all. She Are couldn't figure serious? it out. She thought somebody messed around on her and ruined her relationships or life. Oh my gosh. That's uh, crazy. Yeah. She got millions of dollars, but as she should, as she should, but yeah. <laughs> as she, as she should, Jan. <laughs> uh, but that, but check, check that out. That's okay. on Hulu. Okay. Massive sidebar as, yeah. as we do here on, on the okay. Make it podcast, yeah. black women in film. It's, it's, it's an organization that, that you've been a part of. And I'm curious what your opinion, this is kind of going back maybe two subjects ago, but uh-huh. I'm curious what you think based on what we talked about earlier, uh, the level of represent representation. Do you feel like we're in a good place with representation amongst black creatives in, in film? First of all, black women in film, I'm not a part of the organization. They've just supported me a lot throughout my career. Oh, sorry about that. Yeah. No, it's okay. They've been huge fans of my work and I've presented two films at their festivals and, and their lead who was there, her name was Cheryl again. Um, Cheryl Griffith. Uh, she's just, she's a woman that's an older late woman that ran the organization and then wanted to continue her dream of being a director. So in her late, I'll say late 40 plus 50 plus, I'm I'm not sure. Um, she was like, I want to pursue this. And that was such a beautiful thing to see, you know, her being like, I'm going to be a director. So maybe that push, that spotlight on black women being a director made her feel like she could. You know what I mean? Yeah. When you say representation again, you know, it's like representation for who, what, where, you know what I mean? Is it representation for, again, it's the the filter. Um, I had, this is a long time ago I learned not to put labels on people as much as you can, not to stereotype people as much as you can. Because I remember my cousin's wife had a sister who lived in the projects, had like five kids and who people would look at and deem as like, Oh, that's a, that's, you know, and have these thoughts and assumptions about what she liked to read, eat, do, et cetera. But this woman 
five kids living in the projects, uh, maybe a one bedroom apartment was the president of the Dawson's Creek fan club. <laughs> right. Right. People would not assume they would think, Oh, cause that's when you and all the stuff was around. Oh, she's watching this or, or she's watching, I don't know, whatever stereotypes come with people thinking about people that live in the projects, you know, watching this gang thing or this when number one, you have a lot of, I feel like educated, talented, smart people that live in the projects or people that want to be that or want to be so. Yeah, yeah. We're still a spirit and a soul and we still all have dreams. So you may look at somebody and think, oh, he's this, he lives in the projects. When he has a garden on his balcony and is making fresh marinara, you know what I'm saying? Like right, people yeah. think that, that that stuff is impossible. But I learned early on when you walk around and look at people, don't go with what you assume them to be. Go with what their what their their spirit and soul could be, you yep. know. So as a kid, I would look at people and take whatever stereotype I had in my head and flip it, right? So when you say, "Is there representation for black people right now?" Yes, in the sense that people are trying to open doors and trying to rectify. Per wrongs that they perceive have happened in the past or people not being seen or, you know, just being more open again. What is that filter? If you're thinking that black stories or black people should look like this to even say, you know, me and a friend had a debate about this, about black stories, right? Yeah. Would you yeah. say that me loving Dawson's Creek, me wanting to make arrow me, you know, that that's not a black story. Yeah. I would say what's black about loving Dawson's Creek. Right. And it's like, it's not regulated to a color. It's regulated right. to people, good dialogue, good storytelling, funny ensemble care. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. So I guess we get into this tricky thing where it's again, like, I think even doing that in and of itself creates a stereotype mm -hmm. that I'm not down with, yeah. you know? Um, I think that people, yes, you should be proud of who you are, but people should be able to tell whatever story they want to tell yep. because that's what makes a storyteller. It's make-believe. It is rooted in realism, but what is your reality? My reality, again, these two white males that I knew that grew up very, very, very poor and, and one of them did not have the support system that I did. Right. In terms of a mom that believed that I could do anything and da, 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 da. you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I'm getting off. I, I'm not, I'm, I feel like in this podcast, it's because I haven't talked about this a lot <laughs> out loud. I'm not talking about it. Well, no, I think you're but, doing great. <laughs> thank I, think, you. I, I think it makes a, a ton of sense because the, 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 the other side of that is imposter syndrome. The mm -hmm. other side of that is, Oh, I can't do this. I'm from the projects. Or I can't right. do this because I grew up poor and right. I don't have a support system. Right. And or as a black man, I have to tell stories which are stereotypically, well, now it's getting better, like superhero stories you could tell, but like about, you know, gangs or basketball or whatever. When, what if I want to tell a story about, I don't know, um, going to the moon or, mm -hmm. um, or being a butterfly catcher or, and again, I think in those ways, things are opening up a little bit more, but when you take, I'm always against massive generalizations. Yeah. I think 
whether you're white, black, whatever, massive generalizations really get under my skin because people say that I'm an anomaly. An anomaly. Anomaly. Thank you. I can't even say the word. Um, But I think everybody else is. We just have to dig deep enough to see it. Yeah. I don't know. Have you watched the movie Parallel Mothers yet with Penelope Cruz? No, no. It's really good. Um, You know, it's it's it sits sort of in the upper middle of of this, you know, last year's group of Oscar qualifying films or whatever. But but it's a I want to say it's an indie. It's a foreign Mm -hmm. film. And there's a character in there who's an actress Mm -hmm. and she's been plugging away at this thing for her whole life. And she finally gets the opportunity of a lifetime, but it's going to require her to leave her adolescent daughter. Not, I mean, she's like 17, Mm -hmm. but she just had a baby and a baby she didn't want. She'll have to leave her at home for three months alone Mm -hmm. without support. So she has to make this tough choice and she chooses to leave her because she finally gets, and this was her words in the script. I finally get to prove that I'm not an imposter, right? That because mm-hmm. she lived this posh lifestyle, all the creatives in Spain are Marxists and they, they think she's an imposter and she wants to show that she really like, just because I, I have nice clothes and, and I might have a little money for my family doesn't mean I'm not actually talented and, and totally in love with this art. And I think that no matter who you are, whatever the thing you you're self-conscious about is your excuse to have, and, and, and maybe excuse is a harsh word, too harsh of a word, but it's your reason to have imposter syndrome. Okay. Explain that a little bit more. Like you could be poor. Uh-huh. You could be a black woman. Uh-huh. You could be uh, fat. You could be too skinny. You could be too tall. You could like, like whatever it is, you could live in a city that is in LA mm-hmm. and then you say to yourself, Oh, you know, I should just quit. I've been doing this for five years. Nothing's mm-hmm. happening. And it was never for me anyway. I live in Nebraska, you mm-hmm. know? Yeah. So, so I, yeah. and, and I just, I know that sometimes this creeps up on you and you had a little bout of depression in the middle. I'm just curious what advice you have for this audience to overcome imposter syndrome. Uh, that's funny. Cause I don't even think I realized I had imposter syndrome until a couple of months ago. I, I think that for me, wow. it hits, I know for me, it hits differently for me. It hits in the form of procrastination. Mm. You know, it, it hits in the form of not that I can't do it just that. What if people don't like it? Right. I think that's the thing for me. So when I was starting this film school, it, I, I was like, well, I'm just teaching people how to, you know, direct from their heart and how to understand their heartbeat and how to execute that and, um, and communicate that vision. You know, that's not on any label in any university. You know yeah. what I mean? Why would yeah. somebody want that? But I also understand kind of similar to what you said, but I feel like whatever the enemy is telling you, is the worst thing about you is the greatest thing about you and what the Lord can use to change the world, you know? So my fear of putting it out there to give, to instill this in other directors, now that I've done it for a while, they're like, thank you for giving me this platform to make me feel seen, to make me feel like I can actually do this. So by 
being an imposter, by feeling like I'm an imposter and imposter syndrome, by letting go of that, I allowed other directors to really see themselves and not feel like they had imposter syndrome, if that makes sense. Right. It, it does. And and it's really well put. That's, that's powerful. That, that might end up being the name of this episode. So, <laughs> so we'll, 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 we'll find out. Uh, but, um, you've been so generous with your time. I just have a few more questions. Oh, sure. Yes. Um, what are the best two pieces of advice you've received so far in your career and who did they come from? So one is from this guy named Mark Dobiecki who runs, um, commander in Atlanta. It's a rental house and he does a lot of underwater stuff as well. And he was my first DP, um, for my very first commercial. And the number one piece of advice that he gave me that really worked was make your day that you could be, I was like, Oh, we're going to have this, you know, crane and we're going to do this dolly shot and we're going <laughs> to for a 30 second spot. You know what I mean? And my ambitions were so big. He was like, that's great dream. But at the end of the day, you have to make this commercial. There can be no missing pieces. There's no second day. And that really trained me to let go of my darlings, to really still get the vision, but understand what I need to cut. Because at the end of the day, it's the product that matters. And that makes you continue to work as a director in this business, in my mind, at least in the commercial world. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And it just helped fine tune all this creativity Um, and again, how to, how to focus it. Right. Um, second piece of advice. I don't know if it was advice, but the, you know, when I, when I truly gave my heart to the Lord, when my aunt and those ladies prayed for me and all the people surrounding me, just when I gave my heart to the Lord, anything I could have ever dreamed of being superseded my, my superseded my thoughts and my imagination and any success that I've had in friendships, relationships in this business has truly been because of Jesus. So that's beautifully put. Uh, What creatives do you most admire and want to emulate and and what do they do from a skill Mm -hmm. or technical standpoint that makes their work stand apart? Oh gosh. Um, well, I really love Oprah. Mm-hmm. I love Oprah just because, again, inspiring people to be their best and to push them and have platforms that help people do so. And how real she is and the passion that she has and all of that stuff. Um, other creatives, I mean, there are so many. I mean, I, I love Blade Runner and sci-fi and all of that stuff. But I also love romance. So really this is a bad answer, but like, and I don't know why his name, I'm thinking of Roger Deakins, who was the cinematographer, but um, Ridley Scott is one of my favorite directors. Um, But any director really uh, that deny villain, I always say his name wrong, deny Villeneuve, um, um, Antoine Fuqua, um, directors that really put themselves out there to create a, a piece of work that, um, that changes the world and changes the way that people see things and makes them feel viscerally what they're putting on screen. Those are the people that inspire me, but I also love, I love music a lot. Like Gavin is such a great artist and his latest album has really inspired me. Um, 
and I was able to be a part of the documentary that the six part documentary that he has coming out. I was able to interview him and what will be, what, what's the name of that again? Just really quickly. So the documentary is called face the river and face it's the river. Same as the album, same as the album. And it's out right now streaming on Facebook watch. Um, and it really just chronicles the past couple of years that he's had, he lost his parents. And so the album is about that and their love story and how much they loved each other and him and just that whole journey that he's had to go through. And it's a very deep and personal album and journey. And so the documentary chronicles that, and then the album releases May 20th. And um, he's, he's, I love a good redemption story and he's lived a few lives. So yeah, for sure. Yeah. So anyway, yeah, absolutely. Uh, you get this opportunity to not just be on set, uh-huh. but to actually have students as well. Mm-hmm. So you probably have a great take on this next question, which is okay. what are the biggest creative and business mistakes you see newcomers making today? I'm still making them. I don't know. I can't talk about everybody <laughs> <Yeah>. else. <laughs> um, Amen. Yeah. I think creatively, <laughs> at least for directors, well, really creatives in general, it's just really to understand your heartbeat and understand that there's so much content out there that what really matters is what you want to say and what you want to tell and who you want to collaborate with. And that piece of art that you're putting into the world and your audience will find you. Um, the Lord gave me this thought a while back about like, um, so that's the first piece, really knowing your voice and knowing what you want to do. Um, but it was this idea of life or following your dreams is like walking a tightrope, right? Like at a circus, you're like walking it mm-hmm. and you're looking on each side and fear, you know, fear is like, you could fall, you know, it, it can be disastrous, right? Walking that line to your dream can just be disastrous, but you have to focus on the people on the other side, the, the people that and I'm messing this up right now, but basically there are people that are on, on the other side of your dream that need you because to you, it's a tightrope, but to them, it's a lifeline. Yeah. Yeah. They, they need you. They need you to complete the task. They need you to dream. They need you to try. They need you to fall. They need you to get back up because what you have for them will change their world and maybe promote even more change in, in the lives of other people. So um, I don't know why I went on that tangent. Well, uh, it's a good one. Uh, again, your tangents uh, are rainbows that end in gold. Oh. So <laughs> I think I, I think the more tangents we can get out of you, the the, the better. Listen, um, my mom is always like, "You just talk, just to talk. Don't choose that." So that's my mom's take on it. <laughs> my mom says the same thing about me. And look and look at us. Yeah, I look know. at us. Look We're us. just talking to each other. Uh, <laughs> uh, I want you to go down hypothetical road with me here. Okay. Okay. So imagine mm-hmm. a young director has come to you. Mm-hmm. She's frantic. She says, Jan, oh my God, I, I just somehow got booked to direct a short film, let's uh-huh. say, for example. And I told him I had this resume. It's not true. I, you know, like, I don't know what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. Principal photography sh- starts in one month. Mm-hmm. So if you had one month, Jan, to teach someone how to be a competent director, what would be the first three things you teach them? Wow. That's a great question. 
Well, the first thing I would teach them is not to lie. Okay. <laughs> <Right. Yeah. laughs> Lying gets you nowhere. Okay. Um, I, I, the second thing is I would tell them not to be nervous that they were chosen and called to do this for a reason that nothing is a coincidence. And there was something that they saw in you that they want to be a part of what they do, whether it's the smack that you sold them, right. Or whether it's a piece of work that you showed them. Um, there's something about you that represented beauty in their eyes and inspired them to what could be possible. So you've already got that going for you. Now it's just about learning the technique and how to execute your voice. So really it would be, I am, I'm serious about the line to be honest in your life so that you can be honest in your storytelling, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, and I understand, you know, I'm real bad about lying. Cause I get start sweating and like the whole, so I could be like, Oh, I understand. But I'm one of those that's like, don't tell somebody that you ate this chocolate. Then I'd be like, I ate the chocolate and now I'm sweating and I ate six boxes, but I'm going to replace it. You know, that whole thing. Um, so be honest. So you can be honest in your life and in your storytelling. So you can tell more authentic stories. Um, to not be nervous because you were called for this moment in time for these people. This is the audience that's been looking for you. So there's something about you that has caught their eyes. So now you just have to let it grow. That's it. And so the third thing is technique and understanding. So the technique, the technicalities of how to create a shot list, how to, um, how to do mood boards, how to, uh, break down a script, how to do character development, how to work with actors like that kind of what cameras you want to use, what lenses you want to use, how to work with a DP, how to work with a costume designer. What are colors do you like? What lighting, you know, all of that, what lighting do you like? All of that stuff. And then how to take all of that and put it in a format that you can execute, that you can communicate that vision to the people in your departments and you're golden. That's, that's beautiful. And for those keeping score at home, it's one, be honest with yourself so you can be honest to the camera Two, know that you belong there. Nothing happens by uh, coincidence. Uh, you're there for a reason. And third, get your technicals right. And speaking of which, if you had one camera and one lens to shoot with for the rest of your life, what would you pick? Oh gosh. First of all, I'm not super techie, but anamorphic lenses and some kind of RA camera. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> Love, love it. Love it. Love it. Love it. Um, you're super close to your mom. You're super close to her. Uh, Mm -hmm. she supported you. You supported her. Is there a story that is in your mind that you want to make sure you tell to honor her Mm -hmm. before you're finished? Um, well, first of all, I would also like to shout out my dad, my mom and dad have been a team in raising me and my sister and creating a home and an environment that, shows hard work and love and respect and kindness and passion and laughter. Um, and my dad and my mom are partners, you know, um, my mom had to have a double lung transplant a couple of years ago and she's very brave, even though she was scared, she's very brave. And my mom just always taught me to live your life and to do everything that you can. And but still have a beating heart that, that she's tough, but her heart is so pure, so loving. And so she just taught me 
to, to be passionate, to go after what I want, that nothing is off limits, but to also have a heart that cares and that it matters and it cares about people. You know, my dad taught that me that a lot as well. Um, but I guess that's what I would say. She's, she's a great mom. And is there any story that is in your mind that you, you would want to make that reflects those values? The only story that comes to mind, it's so silly. My mom is going to, we're going to Gavin's show in Atlanta. My parents are going to meet him. Mm-hmm. And so this is the tough and the thing she's like, Oh, I wonder if I should wear my leather pants. <laughs> <laughs> yes. The answer is yes to that. <laughs> to get my leather pants to get my eyelashes done. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, uh, and she's like, you should get your eyelashes done too. And I'm like, mom, it's Gavin. And he's playing at this place called the, Eddie's attic, which is like yeah. holds like a hundred people. You know what I mean? It's like a yeah. singer songwriter. Nobody's wearing leather pants except yeah. my mama. Okay. Yeah. But, but then, so there's the kind of, you know, and then she heard face the river, his new single coming out. Yeah. And she texted me and she said she cried and she was just so moved by it. And it reminded her of her parents that passed. And yeah. so you have this very like tough, I'm going to be sharp. I'm going to look good. I'm going to be this businesswoman. I'm going to be in control, but then art moves her, Yeah, you know? Um, so I don't know. That's the story, I guess. Yeah. I'm, I'm a, a man of her heart. I, <laughs> give me something emotional. I'm going to cry at it. Movie, yeah. Music, whatever, whatever it is. And, um, we started this conversation with uh, a bit of emotion and some tears together uh-huh. yeah. <laughs> of laughter and of joy and of appreciation. And, and I just want you to know that I so deeply appreciate you and getting to know you in this conversation. Uh, can you tell everybody where they can find you on social media, sure. on the internet, or maybe even see some of your work? Yeah. So uh, my, you can find all of that. My website, all of my social media handles is just Jean Lattay, J-A-N-L-A. T is in Tom, A-E, that's .com for the website. And then for social media, those are all my handles. And then Heartbeat Film Club, if you guys want to, you know, be a part of a community. And, um, oh, I'm also speaking at some event in two weeks with a whole bunch of women um, <laughs> in Nashville. Uh, Nika DeGraw is going to be there. Andrea Thomas Hands. Anyway, um, it's called the, un- I don't know. But if you look up Nika DeGraw, you can find it. Um, um, the heartbeat film club, you know, we're starting the $5 film club, which is a membership based subscription where we basically build community and all of my friends that are in the, in the industry, my friend who just directed, who's doing a show for Dick Wolf, my friend who just sold a show to Netflix, they're all coming and being able to speak to filmmakers about, um, the heartbeat film club is where heart and education meet community. And so bringing those people into this online platform where they could talk to them about their experiences and how they made it. And then also classes that are available. If you have, if you're trying to get better at directing, directing classes, um, writing classes, that's and heartbeat film club is it's on the John Latay website, but also heartbeat film club is on social media. I hope I explained that right. No, you did. And I can vouch for you. There are no other John Latays. <laughs> no. When you search for that name, it's only you. What a, what a great job by your parents to, to yes. give you that name because a lot of times, you know, yeah. when we go through this, this research week or two, it's like, oh man, that's the wrong one. That's the, that's not the same person. They got, yeah. you know, anybody with the last name 
Smith and the first name John were in trouble, right? <laughs> right. So, but you, you stood out and yeah. you stand out in a variety of ways. So, I, you know, yeah. I think we'll, we'll end on this. You've once said that your uh, ideal movie is a sci-fi musical action drama film. Yeah. What's your, what's your 32nd elevator pitch for a sci-fi musical action drama film? Uh, seven angels who are handpicked by God are chosen. What is it? Seven angels who are handpicked by who, who are human are handpicked by God to protect Jesus in the last days of 2023. Whoa. It, yeah. And it's like a music sci-fi thing. There is a short, so there are projects that I'm working on like shorts and stuff like that. That's coming up. And I just want to say one last thing, not only thank you, but just going back to the topic of race and all this stuff, these are just our opinions. Doesn't mean it's fact. Doesn't mean it's rule. I'm totally open to learning more about, about how society thinks, but I will also not be ruled by society and be ruled by society telling me who I should be. And I think we all should be open to that. We are who we are and birth to be who we are and the skin that we're in and the place that we're in for a reason. And yes, being recognized in that place is important, but also not getting lost. And that's all that you are. I think that's a wonderful and beautiful place to stop. And what a great piece of advice to take into your day. If you're listening to this in the morning, uh, if you're listening to this, uh, at night, a great thought to have on your mind as you, as you rest your head is to go out and be who you are in the world. Understand that we have a society, but there's no need to be ruled by society, especially if you find yourself not fitting into those boxes and those rules that, that people want us to be in. Jen, this has been an amazing conversation. I know it's going to be so valuable for this audience and for those that want to listen um, to you, go to all of her websites, join the Heartbeat Film Club. It's just five bucks. I mean, come on. It's a child latte. You get all this, this great value. If you want to know more about and, and sort of follow up on this conversation, Everything will be in the show notes and you can find those at www.bonsai.film. You can also find them in the body, sort of the text copy area of this episode. Jan, uh, I know we're going to see each other soon. We're just down the street from one another all the time. I wish you the best of luck. I know you don't need it. And uh, until next time, thank you so much. Thank you. Anytime. Be good. You've been listening to the Make It Podcast. To find out more information about this week's topics, including links to relevant blog posts, projects, and indie creatives, please visit our website at www.banzai.film. If you haven't already, you can join our podcast community on Apple Podcasts or the podcast app of your choice by searching for Make It Bonsai Creative, and the show will pop right up. You now have the opportunity to support the production of this podcast. If you love Make It and are a true fan of what we're trying to accomplish in the indie film community, please visit www.bonsai.film and click Contribute. Contributions start at only $5 monthly. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at underscore Bonsai Creative and on Facebook by searching for Bonsai Creative. You can provide feedback to us via email at contact at bonsai.film. And you can follow me, Chris, on Twitter 
at Flaming Your Heart. That's F-L-A-M-E-I-N-U-R-H-E-A-R-T. And of course, if you're looking to take a big step towards your filmmaking success, go to www.bonsai.film and click on Services to explore a variety of offerings from keynotes and panels to pitch readiness assessments and so much more. You have everything to gain. Until next time, be better, be creative, be engaged, and thank you for listening.